Communicating in the age of Trump, can Republicans get a word in edgewise? We ask our special guest, Antonia Ferrier. The Fury Theory starts right now. The Fury Theory podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. Welcome, Antonia. Thank you, John. You have had quite the Capitol Hill career. I've been called a hill rat before. Bill Frist. Yes. Mitch McConnell, so bookended there. Mm-hmm. John Boehner. Mm-hmm. Roy Blunt. Yes. Bookends there. Orrin Hatch and yes. Olympia Snow. They both have O's. They both have O's. <laughs> kind of, and for all of these really icons of the House and the Senate, you've done communications. Indeed. So, describing your many many years of the career, you communicated started communicating when George W. Bush was president. Yes. And now you have Donald Trump. Talk about how the media has changed in those 10, 15 years. It's a really good question. Um, when I started working in politics, I actually started the NRSC in the 2002 cycle. Republicans took back the majority. Um, there was a much more robust local press corps. You could pitch local media. Um, when I worked for Senator Frist, I did a lot of work with the Tennessee press, and there was a robust Tennessee press corps. The local press just doesn't exist like it does now. So you have the feeding frenzy where everyone's chasing the same thing, and it's kind of boring sometimes. It's latest Trump tweet, Senator respond. Latest Trump tweet, Senator respond. And it's not really that interesting if you're the average voter or the average person in the world, because you start tuning a lot of it out, because all it is is noise and loud, and not really focusing on what the senator or the member you're working for is focused on. So it's a challenge. Uh, John Easton, you know, you have been on the um, both both ends of this. You were chief of staff, but you also were a press person. You were in the House and the Senate. You know, looking at what Antonio has to deal with, it's really a, a complete sea change. It is a sea change, and, and you're exactly right, Antonia. And I actually watched it, too. And although I haven't seen it, the local media slip off as much as you have because I haven't been in the in the Senate uh, quite as recently, but uh, it's really a, it's a sad thing, I think, and because I think right now you get right, you sort of get tackled in the hallway, and what, what do you think about this, that, and the other thing? And it used to be where you know you'd go back to your office and you would you would plan a, an interview with a local reporter that could right. be from you know whatever media market back in the state, and those were really really important. Uh, times in the office to you know get get your act together and figure out what you want to say and anticipate what they might be asking what they're interested in and it has it's completely flipped and and those were just such important players to that state media and it, particularly those who had DC bureaus yep. it's just really it bothers me a lot because you know I I consider long considered the you know the broadcasters and the news local newspapers of a particular state sort of the natural arbiters of politics. And it's just, um, it's, a sad, it's a sad day. Uh, Antonia, talking about how you do your job or did your job when mm-hmm. you worked for Senator McConnell, it's gone from kind of trying to really work respected reporters like Carl Hulse, David Rogers. Yep. Back in the day for me, it was uh, David Broder to deal with clickbait, right? Yes, tons of clickbait. It's always clickbait. I mean... I actually will say, working for a leader, a speaker, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's easy, but you have to be more entrepreneurial when you work for a rank-and-file member. And when I worked for Senator Snow, and she really cared about her state press, we would pitch all the time. 
um, state press to make sure the people of Maine knew what she was doing and she cared about it a lot and she read her local clips and she watched the local TV hits and that mattered a lot. Nowadays, it's just screaming in the hallways and clickbait is exactly right. And look, the if you look at subscribership for the Washington Post and the New York Times, CNN viewership, it's all up. But who's actually watching and listening is not really voters. So, or the voters that sort of matter in some ways or influence in, at the outcome of an election. So the noise is there. The shouting is there. The joy of working for someone like Senator McConnell is he doesn't respond and he is unique <laughs> he does not care who's shouting in his face for uh for a question he will not respond he only says things he wants to say it is something i think some of the other members of congress in both party could uh take a page from his um, playbook from you don't need to answer every single question and he's completely comfortable uh giving some reporters the heisman as he walks down the hallway which is kind of fun to watch it I, is i do remember <laughs> this and i will say that when I was uh, working for the speaker, the only time I would ever really get in trouble is when I was quoted in the Chicago Tribune and he wasn't, <laughs> right? I mean, and uh, talk a little bit about attribution and how that works. Sure. Uh, for the, I think the Senate is different than the House. Yes, I think so, too. It's, it's sort of weird because you would think in some ways the Senate is 100 people who all want to be president. You can see this in the 2016 cycle. You can see this in the 20 cycle for Democrats, how many senators are running for president. So it, in some ways, it is much more about the principle in the Senate and their voice, and the spokespeople don't actually go on the record as much. When I worked in the House... I could sort of pop off on the record with much more reckless abandon than in the Senate. And it's there are so many more people. So it's a little counterintuitive. You would actually think in a body of 435, you would want the member's voice to be out there. But I think part of that is because with 435, there's so much more sort of street and knife fighting in the House in a lot of ways that the spokesperson can get away with saying things that maybe the principal can't. The Senate is just a little more... Stayed. Stayed, yes, or something. John Eason, <laughs> you're a Senate stayed person, right? Well, absolutely, of course. Um, you know, when you it's were. not boring. You know, no, not boring. Stayed, but not boring. Um, when you were the chief of staff, what was your admonition to the press people? Don't get quoted? Well, uh, be careful. Be very careful. And because. It, in, in most offices, I think, because there's a reason why these people got elected in the first place. They're very good with media. Um, not every single one, but most of them. And therefore, you really want to give them the opportunity, if at all possible, because they will likely give the better quote. They might have the better anecdote. Uh, spokespeople are good, but uh, a lot of times they're just they're just not the principal. Right. So that right. that was usually the the admonition. It's just like, okay, if you have to, sure. And it, but it would be usually. Um, it would be aired out first you know, between a couple people and then, okay, yeah, run with it. So, Antonia, talking about Donald Trump and yes. communicating in the era of Donald Trump, how does someone like Mitch McConnell, I know he, Mitch McConnell picks his spots. I mean, you he can't does. compete with Donald Trump, can you? Nope. And he doesn't try. Right. The beautiful thing about Mitch McConnell, I know some people might laugh at my saying the beautiful thing about Mitch McConnell. I say that with <laughs> respect. But he doesn't try. He's never tried to be president. He's never thought about it. He's never wanted to. He's only wanted to be majority leader of the Senate. So he knows his role. Uh, he knows his place. And he's not trying to be the president's mother telling him what he should or shouldn't say. It's, you know, one of the great things that's he, he understands shouting at the wind is a waste of time. And trying to tell Donald Trump what he should or shouldn't say is a waste of time. 
Because Donald Trump's going to do it anyway. So why even try? Right. So when he does say something, it's very much for a reason. One of the funnier things I've ever seen is I think at the beginning of October 2017, there had been a little bit of a rough patch, patch between Senator McConnell and the president after the Senate failed to pass, repeal, and replace. And Senator McConnell went down to the White House for lunch with the president and the vice president. Unbeknownst to any of us, uh, there was all of a sudden a Rose Garden press conference. (laughs) (laughs) And Senator McConnell spoke for maybe three to four minutes. The president spoke for maybe 50. (laughs) And he just sort of sat there very calmly next to the president. And the president was enjoying himself thoroughly. And Senator McConnell had said what he wanted to say and just... Stood there, <laughs> but look, look, discipline, discipline. But looking at that, John Easton, you know, Mitch McConnell's approval ratings are not that great nope. in Kentucky, um, and he needs some of that reflected glory off of Donald Trump. Trump is a huge media presence because he says whatever comes to his mind. The Mitch McConnell is not a huge media presence because he only says what he wants to say when he wants to say it. And we live in a culture that really loves people who just spout off all the time, which yeah. is why this program so great <laughs> of course that's <laughs> um, why we do this right <laughs> uh, so it's putting your political strategist hat on how does how does mr mcconnell kind of get himself reelected? well i, I think antonio of course knows far better than i do but but it seems to me that any sort of anytime you're a, a leader of uh, this institution whether it's the house or the senate you carry with you that baggage of that's being right. establishment in fact your establishment's establishment i mean it's really inside inside and Obviously, in this day and age, uh, that just doesn't, that's not an asset. You know, yes, you're, you're, you know, you're seen as, I think maybe at, at the, on voting day, on election day, you're probably seen as, hey, you know, he's taking care of Kentucky, so that will help. And, but I, I know his political team's really got their work cut out for him, for sure, because uh, I, I think Mitch McConnell's always been somebody to take care of his home state, uh, always first and foremost. But on the other hand, he's... He's he's got this national stage to deal with every single day. He's got Mitch McConnell or you know President Trump to deal with every single day to really carry around with him. And so I and and there's not just Trump voters in Kentucky that he's got to please. It's it's going to be a tightrope for him. You're the expert. What do you think? Well, the thing about Kentucky is, and I'm 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 not from Kentucky. I joke that I'm from the other Lexington, the original Lexington, <laughs> to Massachusetts, uh-huh. which people from Lexington, Kentucky, would always sort of say that's yeah, not, not funny. that funny. That's not funny. <laughs> um, Especially when it's the big Kentucky Derby coming up. Correct, mm-hmm. and Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Trump is really popular there. There is a uh, county in eastern Kentucky, and I'm forgetting its name right now. It has gone to Democrats in the presidential for every single presidential election since the Civil War. Wow. And it went to Donald Trump in 2016. It also went against Rand Paul. So they split their vote there, which is a very – and Senator McConnell's never carried it, by the way. But that just shows his potency, meaning the president's potency in a state like Kentucky. And so you see the rollout video for Senator McConnell. There was a lot of Donald Trump in there, and there was a reason for that. Um, now, Kentucky is an interesting state in that um, I was educated by some McConnell staffers when I started working there. It is a state that it's red and blue are not really defined by the modern concepts of Republican and Democrat. They come from back to the Civil War. Wow. It is the state of the Hattonfields and the McCoys. So you have 
families or areas that have been Republican or Democrat that really it's from the Civil War. It's just they've always worn that that shirt, that party. So it's a very different state. It used to be a lot more blue. It's still purple-ish, but it's definitely trending red. You see a similar situation in West Virginia as well. It was blue for a long time. Those sort of states, those two in particular, are trending more and more red. Tennessee, which sort of was similar for a long time, but its path is a little bit different. It had Nashville. They they were went right to work before Kentucky did, before West Virginia did, and so it's sort of the the shining star of the new South. Kentucky's got a way to go, but right, it's right. Uh, they have similar traditions in all three of those states. And Antonia, you know, one of the great things about Trump is his authenticity and Absolutely. the fact that, and he uses his authenticity on the Twitter. Um, you have a great Twitter presence. <laughs> I love watching you on Twitter. The other guy, the other person I love to watch on Twitter is Brendan Dunn, who I think is hilarious. Um, there's a lot of Catholic Twitter. With there's Brendan. a lot of Catholics. A lot yep. about the Catholic Church, which I appreciate because I'm Catholic. Um, and you know, he's he's hilarious. But the, who do you follow on Twitter? And t- just talk about Twitter as a as a platform. Is it good or bad? I, and Mitch McConnell does it every once in a while. Every once in a while, it's. It's a place where you can easily get sucked in. Right. Um, it's you just sort of have to know what it is, right? I mean, we did an analysis when I worked for Senator McConnell. This is completely expected. Who followed him? It was people in Washington D.C. number one, New York number two, and Los Angeles number three. Oh, so his, his voting base. Yes, exactly. <laughs> reporters, reporters, comedians. Yeah. Like that's uh, what you yeah. determined. Right. Reporters, reporters, comedians. Um, it's you know you the audience you're playing to it's it's the partisans it's the reporters and so you just sort of know that you're not really hitting most average voters i doubt most people in kentucky are on twitter because they don't have time right Right. the average person gets up in the morning if you're a working mom you get your kids to school go to work deal with groceries whatever it is deal with your husband being a pain in the ass whatever it may be (laughs) and then you get home at night you put feed your kids go to bed and maybe maybe you have a Twitter account, but you're looking at it late at night. So for most people, you just don't have time. But it is definitely a, a sparring ground. It can lead people to say things that you would never say to a person's face. So you have to have a little bit of um, humor, I believe, about it and not take it so seriously. But Twitter can also be dangerous, I think, for reporters more than anything else. Right. Um, they fall, There is a herd pack-like mentality in reporting writ large because they all sort of compare each other and the stories they're all working on. And they think one thing is a thing, and then they all follow it. And there's, I think it hurts critical thinking for some of the reporting class. So I think there's some good to it in that from a sort of partisan perspective, you can – uh, you know, be with your side and put some points on the board, but it can also be a bit uh, sheep-like for reporters. So I, my view is you have to have a little bit of fun with it and not take it too seriously. Uh, and I think Brendan follows that, and I, I try to follow that as well. I, I tweet when I'm in the mood. I don't have yeah. any consistent tweeting philosophy. I Me kinda, neither. And sometimes I retweet. I do some retweeting. I don't um, Johnny, do you do you, do you do you do you? I know you're on the Twitter. You're not you're not a bunch of a tweeter. <laughs> you're not much not, of a, not a huge tweeter because I'm not really interested in sparring in my uh, free time. But there are some actually other great things on Twitter. Oh, there is, and I'll say that it, my my some of my favorite uh, that I follow would are sports, and, oh. and and then but I do follow DC journalists a lot because sometimes you will benefit from getting a, a breaking story or something where, you know, where something is going. And, but I, I agree with you completely. You gotta, 
got to have that great assault. Now, if you're not following Super 70 Sports, you're missing something huge. That was given to me, that recommendation, a year ago by a congressman who was on this show, and I can't thank him enough. I love Atlas Obscura, which is just randomly weird things from around the world. Oh, right. And so I, I have some odd things that I follow on Twitter. I will say that following reporters can be an exercise in exploration mm. because what it does, it confirms your bias against liberal reporters because they yes. let it all out there. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's reporters that, who I really respect, like Carl Hulse, who is very down the middle. Because that gives him credibility. Yep. But so many of these reporters just kind of flung off, and they they follow the pack, and they let their liberal biases come out, and they might as well be writing for the nation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess one could argue that it's the the veneer has been torn off, so you can see them for what they are. I mean, it is. I was at Georgetown this past semester, and we were talking about the media one day, and I said, just I said, well, the media is left of center. And one student said, are you sure that's fair? And I said, oh, that's 100%. I'm not, there is no disputing that. They are. And they are. And, and we, you and we have And we have documentary proof. The, the media and Bill Crystal. Correct. <laughs> you know. Way to go, Bill. I yeah. mean, Bill started all of a sudden coming out against tax cuts. I mean, you know, he used to be a conservative. Yeah. There was Jennifer Rubin is another one. Oh, she God, was yeah. the center right. I'm like, what? What? You're against tax cuts? Yeah. I mean, this is like existential to being a Republican. Another Brennan Dunn favorite. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Brennan is uh, a true hero because he does tweet uh, hilarious stuff about his kids on occasion. <laughs> And his wife's employer. <laughs> his wife's employer. Um, well, we won't get into that. No. Nope. But a lot about the Catholic Church. And, you know, he, when you're working for a uh, a big law firm like he is, or when, when you, you're, tell us where you're working right now. Sure. I, I'm working at a public affairs firm called Definers Public Affairs. The gentleman who started it is a man named Matt Rhodes who ran Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Um, and also by a guy named Joe Pounder, who was a research director for the RNC and had worked for Rubio. You know, they're just a bunch of a bunch of sweet, loving Republicans like myself. Um, they had started a, a company called America Rising, which was to take the sort of opposition research, rapid response sort of operation of the RNC and um, bring it outside. And so they do a lot of work for a lot of Republican candidates. I do not do that. I'm more on the public affairs side doing more issue-based campaigns, though I feel like I'm, I've always been sort of campaign adjacent. I've never worked at the RNC. I had a brief stint at the NRSC when I was a baby. But I'm campaign adjacent, and that sort of continues to be the case where I am now. If I want to know what's going on in someone's race, I can go and find some nerdy research person over at Rising and ask them a question. But I do not deal with them day to day. So putting back your um, strategist hat, how do Republicans define themselves in the Trump era? I mean, how do they, are they just got to go all in with Trump, or is there any percentage in them kind of you know, trying to give them strategic distance? If, like, if you're Mitch McConnell— you know, you got to be all Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. I mean, it depends, though, right? I mean, this isn't sort of new. I mean, Trump's just louder. But I remember in the Bush administration, there were a lot of Republican members. Obviously, the war was a huge thing in Iraq, but there were a lot of members who had distance from, from Bush, and we saw that under Obama as well. So I think it really depends on the member or their state. Um, still thinking when they set it hat on, if you're from the House, 
you know, thinking about your district as well. So I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you can disagree if it's you, if that's really what you believe or if it helps you. So I think for like Susan Collins, and I know she's the consummate moderate of the Senate, she's not going to agree with the president a lot and she'll say it and that'll be fine. Yeah, and, be fine for and it's going to be I, fine for her. And I think that, that president Trump has actually learned this, um, as, as the last couple of years have gone by, you remember that, that famous press conference after the midterms and he, went after a couple of Republicans who didn't, who distanced themselves from him. And, Jeff you know, Flake. Yeah, and, and, well, you know, some who lost, and um, and he, he, like Mia Love, yeah. Mage, not showing me any love. Remember that whole thing? <laughs> I don't think he's doing that anymore. I think he's really learned that, in, that, that the majority is so important to have in the Senate and, of course, get it back in the House, that he can't do that. He's got to let, he's got to let them have the freedom to distance themselves a bit from him. Or not, uh, based on the district or the state, and and I think that's going to really help him. And and I think now he just totally gets it. If somebody, if a senator like Senator Collins or Senator Gardner of Colorado is saying, you know what, don't you don't need to come into my state, and I think he gets it. I think he'll appreciate that. Yeah. I also do think, though, it depends on how some of these members hit him. Mm-hmm. There are some things that I think he just can't help himself. I think Collins and Gardner are sort of respectful in their in their. Yeah. And how they approached the president. There were times um, with, in, when you think about the former senator from Tennessee would go on Twitter and he would say the president was in an adult daycare. Yep. It was a little far. And the president is a pugilist. I mean, yeah. you punch him and he feels he's like gonna, he's, he's going to punch you back. And that's just who he is. I mean, he is a New Yorker. Um, that's the other thing about Trump, knowing who and what he is. He's from Queens. I had a reporter in, six, in the 2016 election cycle say, well, you know, New York's a very sophisticated place, and he's around all these sophisticated Manhattanites. And I said, well, he's from Queens. No offense to Queens, but it's it's not this, like, debutante sort of elite, you know, Goldman Sachs place. His dad was in construction, so was he. He's he's a brawler and yeah, he's, a brawl. uh, he's a brawler, no question. He's more like from he's more like he's from Chicago. He's, he's from the south side. <laughs> um, so you know, Mueller report, and I only bring this up because I don't want to talk about the Mueller report because I think it's a bunch of nonsense. I've said it from the beginning; it's a bunch of nonsense. But some people want to keep talking about <sighs> the Mueller report. Um, how do Republicans message out? I mean, if the Democrats go down the Mueller report impeachment kind of path. Is there any chance for Republicans to message outside of that? No, because I think there. It's. I think it is the law of diminishing returns for these Democrats. I mean, you see it in the polling. No one I shouldn't say no one. Their base cares about it, but independents. Karl Rove had a had a column today in the Journal where he cited a whole bunch of polls. Independents do not care, and increasingly, independents do not care more and more. So this is at their own risk. Um, I think most people view this as partisan. They probably thought it was partisan before, but they definitely think it's partisan now. And I think, you know, if you're a Republican strategist and if this is what Democrats want to talk about, let them. Because you know what? They're not talking about any of the issues. They're just looking, frankly, like screaming children. I know they probably read their own clips from yesterday and are feeling pretty proud of themselves, but I think they need to see the forest from the trees here. And I'm not a Democratic strategist, but I would tell them that, yes, they may have gotten on ABC Nightly News or whatever it is, but most people in America don't care and they should get back to the issues. Yeah, I don't think Jerry Nadler is the best look for the Democrats. No, me neither. Um, so this is the most important part of the segment uh, that I like to talk about. And I'm going to start, start with John Easton. John Easton, what are you buying or selling today? It's not. 
clothes or fashion, <laughs> but it's clothes. It's music. Oh, okay. And I'm gonna, so I'm going to buy, and I'm going to buy um, a, a something that has evolved in Washington, D.C. over the last five years, the, the Wharf, which is down on the water, and oh. I'm going to buy the music scene down there. I've experienced it lately, um, whether it's the Anthem, which is a larger Great. venue, 5,000, or whether it's the uh, Pearl Street Warehouse, uh, it's more like about 750 capacity, or uh, Union Stage, which is even smaller. But great bands going in there. Whatever your genre of music you like, it is fantastic. Get down there, see some music. Antonio, what do you... Um... <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's we, awesome. we need to check that out. I, I have not been to a concert there yet. At the Anthem? At the, any of those places, oh. and um, because I suck. Um, but I need to you do it. You also have a six-year-old. I have a six-year-old. But, you know, I like music. I just don't get enough music in my live music in my life. Although I've been listening to a lot of really good rap music in my workouts, and I love it. Uh, Antonio, what are you buying or selling today? Wait, can we just go back to the rap music? It's just urban throwback. You, hey, know, you can I, sell rap music right now if I, you want to. I lo- I like, I'm, I'm into this Kanye phase of my life. Okay, no, I, Kanye's really good. I, I think he's fantastic. I think he's, he's brilliant. He is, I, I think he's brilliant. He is, I'm gonna say he right is now. absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, I mean, Jesus Walks is a fantastic song. It's the whole, this is magnificent. Anyway, okay. Uh, wow. and, and he wears a MAGA hat. He wears a MAGA hat. Well, that, that, that's that, only that, coincidental that. to my life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm buying or selling. Um... I, oh, goodness, wow, I'm so unprepared for this. What am I buying or selling? I'm always buying or selling music. Good. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to go back to, goodness, I don't know what to say. I guess I'm always selling The Clash. I don't know. I just can talk about my love for The Clash, but I don't know. If, am I really selling The Clash? Are you buying or selling The Clash? I mean, I feel like I bought all of The Clash that there is to buy. Then you're probably buying The Clash. I would, yeah, say, I would say buying the clash. Buying the clash. Yeah. Though I will say, remember Andy Taylor with the AP? Yes. He's apparently there is a new biopic on the clash, some kind of documentary which he sent me. So maybe I I will be buying that to watch. Oh, I think. Uh, what, now, what about the clash? What what album did you uh, most love about the clash? Yeah. Well, there, and, what, and what part of your life was the clash? The clash. Oh, so. Number one, my family is born in Britain. Number two, my sister listened to The Clash all the time, as did my brother. Um, there was just something about this era, in, this era in British music in particular, of just saying "screw the establishment" and "screw all of the all of it," which may sound weird coming from a Republican. But I always said when it, when I became a Republican, which was in my twenties, that. No, Republicans don't like the establishment. They don't like the man, and people would laugh at me, but it's true. We don't like being taxed. We don't like any of those things, and uh, police off my back, you know? It's like, you know, we're a little anti... No, it just doesn't really work. I just like the music. I think it's great. Uh, Do you like that that sale I tried to make my conservatism be a part of why I like the clash? Let me say something. Okay, go. This should be the theme music for Donald Trump, because no one's screwing with the establishment more. (laughs) Than Donald Trump. Maybe that should be the theme for the new. Make the, the clash. problem is they were they were kind of socialists. That's the challenge. Yeah. Joe Strummer was. A bit the, of a the other problem is none of these musicians will ever let him use their music. Yeah. Well, God rest. God, you know, God rest uh, Joe Strummer's soul. He is past, but yes, they will not. <laughs> so make the clash great again. Um, that's your that's your buy. Sure. Exactly. Okay. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, I am going to uh, buy a book called Say Nothing. It's a book about uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland. I'm, I'm in the middle of reading it. It is granular about Jerry Adams and uh, the IRA and the provosts and the officials 
and the the struggles they went through the the that they went through and dealing with the British government. Um, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing book. Um, and I strongly, if you care about Northern Ireland or what happened in that, in that era, um, I would strongly recommend you read it. Say nothing. That's my buy. And with that, Antonia, I want to say that uh, we really appreciate all that you went through. Wait, John, can we just tell you one? Can I ask you one quick thing? Sure. Have you, have you watched Dairy Girls? I have. Okay. <laughs> I have. I love Dairy Girls. Okay, if anyone doesn't know what Dairy Girls is, just look it up. It's hilarious. It's it's hilarious. It's um, my sense of it though is, and that's it's the the number one show in Ireland right now. Oh, is it really? Yeah, it's a huge show in Ireland. Um, that being said, it it kind of makes light of a very difficult period yep. in in Belfast history. Um, Actually, dairy. Dairy history, dairy fairy, Northern Ireland history, dairy history. That's exactly right. Dairy girls, duh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a it's a hilarious show um, and um, well worth the, the watch. And it's on um, it's on Netflix, Netflix or I think it's on Netflix. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, well, Antonio, thank you for thank being you. on the Fury Theory podcast. Um, we really appreciate all the lengths you came to come today. Thank you. Um, can you we should... do another one just on on Irish and Northern Irish history? We can. Okay, we'll do that. That would be great. Because you will be very proud of me. I gave it to some Tories in Britain a couple months ago, but they're basically all anti-Catholic, and they were sort of stunned that I said it, and then they all had to sort of acquiesce and say they were. They, they were. Yeah. That's Good. That, that, you would be very proud that's, of me. That's, that's a huge problem, actually. <laughs> and that's actually a huge problem with Brexit, because they can't get around themselves. Yes, correct. With that being said, <laughs> thank you for being on the Fear Theory Podcast, brought to you thank by you. EFB Advocacy. EFB means? Excellent for business. That's right.